Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am swell. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, is it okay to lie to advice columnists? That's the question that's on everyone's mind. Well, at least our mind and a lot of Twitter's mind anyway. Uh, as New Gawker revealed the identity of serial, uh, of, of a serial Dear Prudence Fabulous. I don't want to say it's the serial Dear Prudence Fabulous because I imagine there's a lot of serial Dear Prudence Fabulous out there. Uh, YA author Bennett Madison revealed in a first-person essay for Gawker uh, that he was the author of numerous fake questions during the scoldy tenure of Daniel Lavery. Uh, as Prudy, Lavery was, quote, an heir to Miss Manners, end quote, who, quote, was guided by the convoluted pieties of Twitter, end quote. Um, as such, uh, Bennett Madison found fertile soil for questions like, help, my friend thinks I am stealing vaccines from African-American grandmothers to attend sex resorts. <laughs> and help, my husband won't remove his mask even for sex. Uh, it's that last one that went so viral that it wound up on Tucker Carlson's TV show, where it became fodder for demonstrating the absurdity of liberals and their fears about the vaccine and the virus and all that sort of stuff. Um, I, uh, I, I thought this was very funny because it caused Madison to feel some remorse. He was like, whoa, what's going on? You know, along with uh, the proliferation of clearly fake questions uh, on the Am I the Asshole subreddit uh, with this uh, unsettling event providing fodder for Tucker Carlson and his crew of mouth breathers, um, he felt it was time to re retire the bit for now. Uh, the question before us is a simple one. It seems to me. Is it wrong to lie to advice columnists when advice columns are among the most ridiculous things on the planet anyway? I mean this in a not entirely negative sort of way. Ridiculous things can be amusing for sure. They can be instructive as well. Uh, but anyone who is deriving actual knowledge and advice for how they live their lives, frankly, uh, from someone who dispenses it via webpage should probably committed to an asylum uh, and at the very least banned from proper society. I don't know. I, maybe that's a little bit of an overreaction. Peter, in our text thread discussing this story, you said advice columns are worse than musicals, which is hard for me to comprehend since musicals are inherently terrible. Uh, but even you must recognize the ethical quandary here, right? If somebody is somebody's offering advice and you're giving them fake questions for advice, doesn't that make you the villain? I mean, I think everyone involved with the production of of uh, advice columns is a villain. Uh, I, I, maybe even the with the production uh, with like the reading of advice columns. The, reader, I just the readership. No, so is also I, villainous. I should, I should I should revise that. I actually like personally um, several advice columnists. Uh, I've met Dan Dan Savage. Emily Yaffe is just really wonderful, right? Like, there's they could be great people. Um, and no disrespect to their chosen professions, but like, I don't get the fascination that people have with advice columns at all. I find them less interesting than sports and sort of like they're the, you know, the web journalism equivalent of reality shows. And I have the same reaction every time, which is I don't care about these people at all. I can't, and I'm sort of angry. Like I, when I find my, not that the, not that this form exists, but when I occasionally, like I get mad at myself for having wasted my own time, like watching somebody redecorate their living room or ask uh, like a, you know, a, a slate writer what to do with their life. Either way, it's like, why, why in the world, what in the world 
what I get out of this. I have absolutely no idea. Um, that said, I think the like the actual ethical question that you have raised is an interesting one here. Um, and I think it's 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 not that the writer has some sort of ethical obligation that we need to be worried about. It is that the responder does. And in the way that journalists who go around and ask people questions on the street and have to verify that information, oh, what's your name? How old are you? What's your address? Right? Like all of this sort of thing, right? Like whenever, when, it, when you get quotes from people who just happen to be standing around at an event, you have to actually go through a whole process to find out that, to like make a, a an effort to determine that this is a real person who is telling you something that they basically really think. And there's differing levels and like, it sort of depends on which, what, what publication you're working for and, you know, the different, uh, the different rules and also the type of event you're covering. Right. Um, and sort of how important it is, a bunch of things like that. But at the same time, the job of the journalist who is collecting quotes from people who claim to be a certain person and claim to have a certain belief is to determine that those people are not fooling them. Right. Uh, and so and like when reporters for, you know, Rolling Stone or whatever, uh, get told really, really ridiculous stories that just sort of seem like that perfectly prove a point that the journalist wanted to prove uh, that their job is to investigate whether or not it is true. And so I think the issue here is whether or not the whole enterprise of like just of, of like presenting this sort of thing as if it is in some sense real is is ethical or not and what i would say is that like they should at least have a disclaimer i'm not going to say it's not ethical but like the 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 producers of advice columns should at the very least have a disclaimer that says we made absolutely no effort whatsoever to check the, any no, detail about I, this i i think that's understood going in though i mean Alyssa, do is you it? think do is, people is, i mean his advice tucker carlson advice, actually assume, did the segments well that's but that's on tucker carlson, carlson. That's on Tucker because Tucker Carlson is nominally doing uh, a work of journalism. I guess here's the question, Alyssa. Is a, is an advice column an actual piece of journalism or is it more like prurient gossip mongering? Oh, I think advice columns are a form of entertainment. And I think this question also goes to show that I'm the only real American on this podcast because I love <laughs> sports and musicals and advice columns. Americans hate musicals. That's why that's a it's a dead form. <laughs> that's why Steven Spielberg, the most important director of the last like half century, is making a musical this year. It's why it's why it's going to be one of his lowest grossing films of all time. It's going to um, be great. But the thing about advice columns is that they're entertainment. And the specific way that they're entertainment is that they are an ongoing source of schadenfreude. I read Slate's advice columnist regularly for the same reason that I like to flip through the DC Urban Moms forums or the sort of community forums on like one of the pregnancy tracker apps that I'm using to prove that other people are crazier than me and that their lives are more lunatic than mine. And that's what made this such a perfect troll uh, which is that it played on both the, the this specific advice columnist's sort of desire to be a moralist in specific ways and in readers' desires to believe that other people are just much more nuts and screwed up than they are. Um, and, I mean, it, it's a great sort of old-school media confessional, like, I did this, Um but it's one that's just beautifully attuned to the form. And I think it's kind of genius. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I also think that readers of 
Slate's advice columns in particular and forums like Am I the Asshole on Reddit have attracted a kind of sophisticated reader for whom part of the fun is discerning between whether or not a specific human being is actually this crazy or whether they're being trolled. And the, part of the entertainment there is the discernment process, but also the fact that the line is really fine. I mean, you know, there are like, we live in a society where people are going around demanding deworming drugs for a virus and believe that healthcare professionals won't give it to them because they want to kill them for the insurance money, right? Like we live in an era of yeah, society. Wait, show, wait, show me the lie. I don't, what, where's, what's, what I, <laughs> explain. So maybe Alyssa. Sunny's the real American. Um, so a virus and a worm are different things. What? And well, a virus is just a type of worm. And well, like, uh, it's good not I'm, to. It's I'm good. an expert in bird law. I know this. <laughs> it's good not to have worms in your body, but getting rid of the worms in your body won't make the virus go away. Uh, science, QED, I've solved all your problems. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is a just a brilliant troll in that it plays to the actual tastes of the readership for this particular advice column. And I should be clear, this would not have been nearly as funny or effective if he was writing these letters to Miss Manners, right? Because those letters are, you know, it, that's an advice column that genuinely is about parsing sort of details of etiquette from a slightly old-fashioned formal perspective that people want sort of straight up or down rulings, right? But if you write into one of these sort of morally inclined advice columns, they are just rife for trolling. Um, and the columnists themselves are sort of rife for being taken in by their temptation to gain readers by uh, presenting the most ridiculous scenarios possible, right? I mean, the, the slate headline style for these columns it is very much acknowledging that what people want is not basic rulings on whether they're right or wrong. And there, I think advice columnists can provide something of a genuine service for people. If you're, you know, if you and your husband disagree about the amount of money that it's appropriate to give as a wedding gift or, you know, what the window is for sending thank you notes, having a neutral observer who is familiar with a sort of body of etiquette or financial literature to weigh in on that can just be really useful and can be a way of solving a dispute um, by a neutral arbiter. But these morally inclined, sort of socially engaged, intentionally wild advice columnists, everyone's complicit. And so, I mean, maybe it's not, I think in this case, the cleverness of the troll dramatically outweighs any sense of moral violation. So I think it's great. I wrote into an advice columnist, I would have to write, like my headline would have to be like, help, I hate advice columnists, or help, I hate advice columns, because I find strangers' problems totally uninteresting. So, I mean... Probably wouldn't get picked. No, no, no. It would Probably definitely be picked. more like, help, um, my wife thinks that my lack of interest in advice columnists means oh, right. that I'd I'm have a to sociopath. It's Help. I my my lack of interest in, in advice columns suggests that I actually hate oppressed minorities. 
Can you please tell me Ooh. what to do? I, no, I. So here's all right. So so uh, to, to to try and make this slightly again slightly more serious. The reason I, I think this works as a topic for us is because we are talking about this as a form of entertainment. This yes. is essentially pro wrestling for the literate class. This yes. is not to say that that pro wrestling is an illiterate in, endeavor at all. I watched much pro wrestling when I was younger. It's perfectly fine entertainment. Um, but the the uh, but we're, we are discussing this solely as a a function of entertainment and uh, kind of a a, um, a almost as a form of literature, almost as yeah. a form of of literature. And and what I'm what I'm suggesting is that there are people who do not take it that way. There yeah. are people who take it seriously. That there are people who are actually trying to live their lives. Like we we laugh at the we laugh at the absurdity of the idea that these that there are people out there who would you know try to parse the correctness of taking their mask off during sex right but we are we are living in a time of uh of of un <laughs> unprecedented social and moral change that is sped up and uh, aided and abetted by the rise of social media and all sorts of other factors and I, 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 you know, even if these questions are absurd, there are people out there who are trying to figure out how to live their life in the correct way. Now, maybe those people deserve to be the figure of fun and deserve to have their uh, intellectual processes toyed with. But I don't think it's I don't think it's an unreasonable question to ask if it's yeah. if it's okay. And what I would what I would say is that I think it's useful to think of an advice column as a literary form like a novel in which you can do a lot of different things, right? You can, um, you know, you can write fairly unadorned prose in a novel. Like you can be Ernest Hemingway and write a lot about like fishing or, you know, the Spanish Civil War and do it in sort of unadorned prose that's straightforward, that has, you know, a narrative and a moral point, but that um, is sort of, its plainness is its literary quality. You can also use it to write, you know, you can be Carl Ove Nausgaard and write like thousands of pages about your inner life. You can write slim satires. You can write books that are frankly bad and sort of morally preening and self-regarding. And I think an advice columnist, an advice column functions in the same way and finds its readers in part based on the way the columnist you know, approaches the form, develops a personal style and a relationship with the audience. I think part of what is, you know, Peter, what you're probably underrating about them is that they're very much a sort of um, audience-driven form, right? Like Dan Savage is incredibly successful. My colleague, Lisa, at The Post, Lisa Bonos, actually did a great Q&A with him about sort of doing this job 30 years on, um, is that he developed a voice and a style and a worldview that, made people feel safe asking him, you know, really challenging questions about very intimate concerns. And he's seen how, you know, sort of public morality and self-confidence about sex have shifted over time and has been able to help people negotiate that. And so I think the way to approach this is, you know, it, it might have been immoral or cruel if it was done with sort of more subtlety or targeting a different advice column, but it also wouldn't have worked as a joke and sort of as a, as, as a literary hoax. 
Um, and so that's sort of why I said I thought the sort of amusement of it and the style outweighed any potential moral harm because, you know, I mean, Dear Abby or Carolyn Hacks was never going to pick a letter that sounded so over the top. <laughs> it's It just wouldn't have worked that way. The, yeah. the, the form that the target took and the form that the hoax took were complementary in a way that I think mitigates most of the harm, if any. Sure, sure. Peter, are we turning you around on advice columns? Are you going to start reading Dear Prudence now? Just every every day, just diving into the slate. No, I don't columnist. think I will start reading advice columns. Um, look, if people like reading advice columns, they should do that, and they should watch sports and reality television and etc. Um, and in fact, it's not that Musicals. I don't care about other people's problems. It's just that there's something sort of strange, and I, I don't I don't enjoy sh- the Schadenfreude aspect of this, uh, Schadenfreude aspect of this, uh, very much at all. And I also it almost, you know, there's there's something I, I find that makes me like a, a little bit sad because like it's, it always seems to me like to the extent that these things are representing something that's real, right, rather than this sort of performance art that we're talking about here, it often means that the people who are writing these letters in feel like they're in a really hard place in their life and they don't have anyone to talk to. And I think it's, it's very important to talk to your friends and to the people who are like you're, who are you're close with about their problems. And I, I, I try to make myself available for that sort of thing. Right. And, and that sort of, and like that project is very useful, but to do it in this sort of public way as entertainment. Yes. I think, you know, again, I think your, your point about Dan Savage is, is in fact, totally right. Like, and I, I have come to a, a, like I said, I've I've met him and I I quite like him and I've come to appreciate um, what he does, uh, even though it is it's not for me. But there is just sort of it it does sort of seem like this odd kind of exploitation of people's hard moments. Um, you're you're saying and it's I don't cruel. I don't that's not something that, and I I guess I th- I know that like lots of people who read these things don't take it that way and they're not they don't think of themselves as engaging in cruelty and they're not in a, like they're not pointing and laughing in a way that like hurts the person directly so I don't want to you know I, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on people who like these things at the same you're time you're saying I you're I just, saying you, can I let yeah, me sure. what I uh, how I read you is you're saying think about the person who is submitting the questions for real and how they are interpreting this this round of laughter at people who are just making it up and doing it in the most ridiculous way possible. I don't even know if I think, yeah, maybe a little, but I guess even more than that, it's sort of like, if these problems were, if these were problems that I had, and you know, sure, everybody's had like a difficult question about what to do in life with a relationship or a, Can't relate you know, a, whatever, right, an AV system, um, something like, whatever it is, right? Uh they're all you go very and you ask. You go and you ask your friends, and it's not. And like you ask your friends because they care about you and because they're people who know you. And an advice columnist doesn't know you, has no connection with you outside of the fact that you are a product for them to sort of perform some sort of literary whatever on. To and it's not. It's not that that can never be useful, and it's not that there isn't maybe even a public service in and working some of that out, right, over time for the world as uh, morals shift. At the same time, it just sort of seems like, you know, 
this sort of thing should be like what's what's happening in your life if it's not if it is being handled this way rather than by going to your by going to a friend yeah uh okay uh what do we think so let's let's get to the big question here is it a controversy or a controversy to lie to advice columnist Alyssa? it's controversial peter i mean i think it is kind of funny <laughs> this isn't this isn't funny or die peter this I don't, is controversy or controversy it's a funny verse. I don't know. It's a, it's controversial. I think it's I think it's mostly a controversy because I, I do think Alyssa's right that most people who are reading this are reading it for entertainment value and like to try and figure out which of these are fake and which are real. Um, but I will say that if uh, if Madison uh, was ever to if it was ever to be revealed that Bennett Madison uh, was faking this story for the gawker, it would be the most amazing troll of all time. Yeah. If he if he had written if he's written a fake. Uh, essay about writing fake letters and getting it published in New Gawker. I will I'll buy all of his uh, YA novels and give them to somebody as a gift um, because that would make me that would make me incredibly happy. It would be very very funny. All right. Uh, if you enjoy the show, uh, and who doesn't, it's way better than advice columnists. Um, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, uh, where we're going to have a special bonus episode about Oscar Isaac and his best performances, what we like about him, what we dislike about him. Uh, I can't imagine that second part's going to be very long, but, you know. Uh, speaking of Oscar his hair's Isaac. too good. That's, well, I mean, look, that's... He can't help that. We can't hold that against him. Uh, speaking of Oscar Isaac, we're on to the main event. It's the card counter. Isaac's new starring vehicle for writer-director Paul Schrader. Uh, The Card Counter is one of those movies that's being pitched as something slightly different than what it actually is. It's not really a movie about poker or blackjack, as has been implied in the trailers, Uh, though Isaac's William Tell is, in fact, a professional gambler. Um, Yes, he counts cards, winning minor amounts of money as he travels to casinos around the country, avoiding big scores that would attract the attention of pit bosses. And yes, he plays poker, uh, making an improbably high number of final tables once he makes the leap to the World Series a poker qualifying circuit. And we can break down the the poker and, and gambling aspect of this later if we want. Um, but this isn't a movie about gambling, really. It's a movie about absolution and how we achieve it, whether or not uh, we're even worthy of it, frankly, at the end of the day. Tell's only a gambler because he spent nearly a decade in Fort Leavenworth learning how to count cards. Uh, and he was in Fort Leavenworth because he was one of the guards at Abu Ghraib, one of the guys foolish enough to get caught in a picture uh, because it was the guys who got caught in pictures, not the contractors like William... Uh, I'm sorry, Willem Dafoe's Gordo, uh, who taught them their wicked trade and not the generals who oversaw the site and its abuses that were punished for the torture that shocked the nation's conscience. Um, Tell accepts the financial backing of Lalinda, played by Tiffany Haddish, to uh, enter the World Series of Poker's kind of satellite tournaments because he hopes he can win enough money to help Kirk with a C, played by Ty Sheridan, pay off his debts. Um, whereas Tell's debts are moral in nature, Kirk's are more classically financial. He has student loans, his mom has a mortgage, he needs some money, he wants to get out of debt. Uh, Tell hopes to save Kirk because Kirk's father also served at Abu Ghraib, and Kirk's father was so broken by the experience uh, that he took it out on... Uh, Kirk and his mother. Um, while it's, again, it's not a movie about gambling per se, I do think it's worth noting the ways in which Schrader's use of gambling in this context uh, kind of defines Tell and the movie itself. These are these are games of self-control and self-discipline. With blackjack, it's about understanding when and how much to bet based on the odds of the cards left in the decks. With poker, it's, uh, it's, about, inv- it's about avoiding the dreaded tilt that warps your judgment of both your opponents and yourself and your cards. Um, you're playing less against 
against others than yourself in both of these circumstances. Uh, the card counter calls to mind previous Paul Schrader pictures in ways small, uh, like Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver and Reverend Toller in First Performed. William Tell keeps a journal designed to apprise us, the audience, of his mental state and chronicle his moral journey. Um, and ways large. Uh, this is not a religious film, exactly, but it is at heart a movie about absolution and the methods by which we uh, do the absolving of our sins. Schrader famously did not see a movie until his late teenage years. He was raised Calvinist and would study theology before going on to UCLA uh, and studying film in grad school. And his films are often concerned with God's lonely men, those in search of something just out of reach. Again, think Travis Bickle or Reverend Toller, those guys. Uh, again, The Card Counter is a secular film, but it's one with a decidedly religious ideal underpinning it. It is also occasionally very tough to watch, dealing as it does with rather graphic depictions of sexual humi humiliation and other forms of torture. Um, Alyssa, what did you make of The Card Counter? Um, it's interesting. This is one of those movies that I think both of you, particularly Peter, were sort of worried about me being able to tolerate. Um, and I thought it was wonderful, not least because it reminds me a lot of Zero Dark Thirty, um, Catherine Bigelow's masterpiece about the hunt for Osama bin Laden and the sort of ruination of America. Um, you know, Zero Dark Thirty is concerned with America's torture program sort of only in its opening segments, um, whereas this is entirely a movie about what it means to sort of live with that legacy. Um, but I thought that they were just, they were similar and really moving in their sort of depiction of what it means to live with the costs of having done terrible things. And Isaac is so good in this movie, uh, which is written and shot with a level of detail that I found really impressive. I mean, there are all of these little unremarked things in the movie. Um, Peter sort of joked about how good Isaac's hair is, for example, but the fact that his hair is sort of perfectly put together until this moment where he lets down and lets him, himself feel this moment of sort of human pleasure and connection, um, the way he and the other characters sort of mirror each other, um, but also maintain their facades with each other by ordering the exact same thing that another person is drinking at the bar uh, at the various casinos where they meet up. Uh, it's just such a meticulous movie. And I think it makes the shift into the scenes at Abu Ghraib um, so jarring because of the chaos that they depict um, and the way that they're shot, which is very distinctive and a sort of a sharp break from everything else in the movie, um, that it's just, it's such a, it's not a flashy movie in a lot of ways, right? It's, you know, it's not a movie where there are not, it's not about special effects, it's not about big spectacle, but it is just a great example of a filmmaker sort of making choices down to very small details, not necessarily feeling the need to explain or even pay off every single one of those choices, but having them contribute to a mood um, that ultimately serves sort of a higher moral point. I thought it was terrific. Peter, what did you make of it? Yeah, this is a, a pretty remarkable movie. Um, not always an easy one to watch, as I, you know, as you said. Uh, 
and I say that even as, you know, I, I am one of those guys who has seen Taxi Driver dozens and dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times. Um, and I don't know if I will come back to the card counter all that often. At the same time, it's it's a great film. And I mean, I, I think it should be, uh, it's an early contender for being in the best picture discussion. Um, I, you know, appreciate it for a lot of the reasons that you talked about, Sonny, and that elicited, but just a couple of other things that I wanted to point out. Uh, one was uh, the depiction of the aesthetics of normie America, which it just got so right in a way that, like, it's really hard to think of another good example outside of maybe, maybe st some of Steven Soderbergh's work. Uh, but even even this is just sort of like the the kind of poorly lit cargo shorts and strip malls vibe of um, the America outside of New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco, you know, the big cities that you see in movies so often. And it just gets the texture of all that, right? Like they go to a, they, one of the casino bars, they show up in the order Manhattans and they're served on crushed ice and big tumblers with, you know, <laughs> like a, a gross red cherry sitting in the middle of it. And it's like, on the one hand, this is a little tiny detail, but it's also an, would have been an easy one to mess up for a production yep. designer to just say, oh, they're, they're, they're ordering Manhattans. That's a sophisticated drink that's served at a coupe glass up, right? Like in this whole, like, and it would look like a big city drink. But no, if you're ordering a Manhattan in Atlantic City or someplace just off Atlantic City or wherever it is they happen to be, I think the, the movie was mostly shot in and around Biloxi. Um, you, this is how this is how it would come out, and this is what it would look like. And so every one of those details is just right. And then you combine that with the kind of the interesting digital flatness of the imagery. It's not uncinematic, right? It's not that Schrader isn't careful or that this is lazy. In fact, the opposite. The, the just on a shot composition level, this movie is incredibly meticulous, but it doesn't have that painted lushness you get from, I don't know, late Spielberg or uh, even the Coen brothers. And it's not that I don't like that kind of imagery, but it's really interesting to to see how effectively he is using um, natural light or what appears to be quite natural light and uh, a, a boxy aspect ratio without a lot of the kind of artifice and, you know, light and shadow tricks that you see in, in, in modern Hollywood these days. Um, well, it's, it's formal rather than beautiful. Yeah. And that actually plays in really well to, I mean, this is a movie about a guy who has been exposed to and participated in sort of unfathomable chaos, right? Morally and logistically unfathomable chaos that has been deliberately unleashed by the U.S. government that he's been enlisted in. And it's also and, flat and a little bit harsh, right? And, like it is compressed, like it doesn't sort of want to, it doesn't want to let a lot of emotion in, which and, is, and, again, a very interesting and telling choice for a movie like this. But what he craves is this sort of restoration of order and flatness, right? I mean, the movie never really explains his tendency to cover everything everywhere he goes in sheets, right? I mean, it's, you know, in the last scene, it's, you know, you would, maybe you're supposed to think that he just doesn't want to leave a trace of himself anywhere, but it's so clearly about sort of reducing stimulation and, you know. Well, it's what, about, it's about all of those things, right? And that's yeah. what's, and, and again, it's such an interesting choice because on the one hand, it's the, it's like the 
the most obvious sort of like character defining thing about him. And on the other we hand, should exp- we, should, not- we should describe what is yes, actually happening right. in these. Yeah. So when when uh, William Tell, when Oscar Isaac's character goes into a hotel room, he uh, takes out a bunch of sheets and twine and covers everything from the, the bed itself to lamps to desks and uh, tables and chairs, that sort of thing with the sheets. And and essentially it's it's almost like you what you would imagine if you uh, were planning a murder and you wanted to cover cover and make sure everything could be covered up in a in a moment's notice if you there's had a to. there's a definite like Dexter preparing his murder room vibe right uh, to the scenes and, and yet the movie doesn't go out of its way it like not just doesn't go out of its way it never offers a definitive explanation of what the hell is up with that which is great because it just sort of allows it to be it's not like unclear it's not like it's not like you just walk out confused. At the same time, it allows it to be a little bit mysterious because yeah. and it, you just don't know what's going on in his heart, right? Like, in, And, and yeah. the, the movie, in fact, undercuts the obvious sort of Dexter prep yeah. explanation in the one, you know, in the climactic sequence when he does commit a horrible act of violence, he reports himself for it. Like, he's not trying to cover up. But it's, you know, it is so well done as... A, a movie where the form matches the character's desperate desire to have order, not, not just to, you know, reimpose order on himself, but even to have order imposed on him um, to the extent of describing himself as someone who's suited to incarceration and finds that sort of certainty of it just deeply reassuring because of what he's seen. And then you have the deviations in the cinema, this sort of fisheye, like cinematography that turns the scenes at Abu Ghraib into, I've, I, my initial reaction to it was it was a weird equivalent, a weird sort of combination of a first person shooter and like one of those 3D tours you can take of properties on Redfin. Yeah. Um, it's inc- it's immersive and really disconcerting, and the break between the forms is incredibly effective. Yeah, the cinematographer said in the in the script that Schrader described it as like a VR experience. Yeah. That mm-hmm. uh, essentially how they did it was getting a bunch of GoPro cameras with like three sixty coverage and and rendering that as a flat image, which is uh, what causes the distortion. I want to talk about the end just a little bit because I, I I think it's worth unpacking what we think actually happens at the end. So, uh, spoilers, I guess, if you if you don't want to if you don't want to hear what happens in the actual last few scenes of of the movie here. Um hop off now. We've already got your download. So, haha. Um but the uh the 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 in in the final scenes uh tell, I'm sorry, I'm I'm back. Tell uh confronts his uh one of his superiors at Abu Ghraib. Um, and uh, takes him into a back room in his Northern Virginia home um, because he's a contractor now, of course. Uh, and uh, we are left, we, we are not entirely sure what happens. Uh, he, he kills, uh, Oscar Isaac's character kills um, the, uh, kills, the kills Gordo. Major uh, Gordo. Kills the... Kills, kills the contractor, Major Gordo, and comes out and reports himself. But he himself has also clearly suffered injury. He's been tortured himself. Do we think they were taking turns torturing each other? Or uh, this is my personal read on it, is that uh, Tell was actually torturing himself in between the... 
Well, there is that uh, line between... right as they walk in where one of them says, you want to go first? That is suggestive without actually explaining what happens there. So I, I don't know. I, I guess I don't have a theory I don't, I, logistically about what speaking, happens in this. Logistically speaking, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense for them to take turns torturing each other. How would you uh, how would you like confine a man in a way that allowed him to torture you, but also not escape? Well, they're both professionals. And in fact, uh, one of the things about the the way that torture operates in this film is that it is viewed as a creative endeavor, right? And it's sort of, in some ways, a kind of anti-creative endeavor, one that instead of like expressing yourself and becoming who you are, like the way that we think of like painting or making a movie or whatever, no, it's the other thing. It's it's one that that makes you a monster um, rather than, you know, sort of a, a, a more full person. Uh, but it's a creative endeavor. So whatever happened there, I, I guess I don't feel like I have to, like I have to know. And I, yeah. I, this movie doesn't yeah. like leave me with the question of like, oh man, maybe there was some sort of weird game going on that they were playing and it was devious. And there was like, no, it's not, it's not one of those like clever serial killer films where you have to figure it out. It's a movie yeah. that lingers sort of like I was saying on, on the, the, about the, the white sheets business. It lingers on the mystery of what makes us, what makes us sinners and what makes us human and what makes us evil and what makes us good. And that's, you know, the, those are themes that have been there uh, in Trader's work for decades now. Um, but but this movie really sort of works because it tells you exactly enough and not too much. And that's what you always know about a person if you know them, right? Like knowing a person is is to not know everything. It is to know enough that you have feel like you have a sense of them and like they basically fit together and make sense, even if they do some strange things. And you never really know, right? Like even even the people even the people you are closest to can sometimes be a mystery and can sometimes seem impenetrable. And Schrader just embeds that into his films better um, and more deeply than almost any other filmmaker I can think of. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on the card counter? Uh, Alyssa? Uh, thumbs up. Peter? Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Good movie. Uh, go see it in theater. It's where it's playing right now. Um, all right. Uh, that is it for today's show. Uh, if you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on the greatness of Oscar Isaac. We'll have more to say about him. We, we, we didn't get into nearly enough about his hair. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. Uh, if we don't grow, we'll die. Uh, if you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. <laughs>